welcome to the next installment in the series on the transformation of the soul. Let's look to the word of God. Genesis, the first chapter and the 26th verse says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27 says, God created man in his own image. So the first part of verse 26 was the conversation. It was the idea. It was the concept. He said, let us make man in our image. Verse 27, he does it. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. Verse 28 says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we have discussed this where we have addressed the fact that mankind was created for dominion. But interestingly enough, if we look at it within the context of this scripture, the dominion is not uh, outside of or autonomous from God himself. The dominion doesn't come just because mankind was created. The dominion doesn't come just because you're all that in a bag of chips. But the dominion comes right in conjunction with the fact that mankind was made in the image and in the likeness of God himself. When the Bible says there, uh, let us create man in our image, the Hebrew word for that is teselem. And it is from a root word meaning to shade, which means that when God said, let's make man in our image, what he literally meant was that uh, mankind was to be a, a reflection of him in the same way your shadow is a reflection of your unique self. I've never seen anybody with a light that's shining on them and a shadow appear on the floor and the shadow actually belongs to someone else or someone who's not in the room. The shadow is always a unique and direct representation of the person who is uh, being shaded or who that light is reflecting past. And so when God says that he's making man or has made man in his image, he literally means that mankind is meant to be that magnitude or that caliber or type of reflection of who he is himself. That was the creatorial right and position and property of mankind. And then he also says, let us make man in our likeness, which is the Hebrew word demuth, which means to resemble. It means to be like. It means to be likened unto, but in a comparative sense. So where you have probably heard someone say, oh, you're just like your father, or you look just like your mother. Uh, and they're looking at some attribute or some feature of that child that literally is the same or comparatively likened unto that parent. That's what this means when it says in our likeness, in our demuth. Demuth means to make them to resemble us. So here is the, the issue that we're having. And it falls right in line with our theme for Dominion 2020. It falls right in line with everything that the Holy Spirit is saying and doing and releasing into our lives in this season. And it has everything to do with the transformation of the soul. So mankind's original creatorial place was in the exact image and in the exact likeness of God. So we understand that to mean that Adam had uh, properties and abilities and reach and aptitudes that uh, we, because we are on the other side of his fall, never, ever, ever got to experience. Some scientists would say that we're only using something like six to seven or maybe 8% of our brains. So when we consider that we are not even tapping into half of the capacity of our mental self, it gives us some insight 
light into what was actually lost in the fall. Mankind was created in the image and likeness of God. The Bible says in the book of Genesis that Adam and Eve heard God walking in the cool of the day. One of the most fascinating scriptures, because we understand that the scripture also says that God is light. He is a perfect light in whom there is no darkness or shadow of turning. And so in order to hear the frequency of light move, you yourself have to be a light being. So the Bible is indirectly espousing to us that Adam and Eve in their creation was perfect light or were perfect light. They were the substance of light. They could think like light. They could move like light. They could hear the sound of light, which meant that they just had tons of abilities that we in our humanity and in our day have never had the opportunity to experience. So let's talk about the transformation of the soul. We've got to address the fact that much of what the Lord intended for humanity was completely lost in the fall. Satan was able to get in there and to really convince Adam and Eve out of the right of being the magistrates and the governors of a God's creation. They lost their glory, which was the part of God that was more than just a covering. We understand that it was a covering, but it was literally a similitude. God took up his glory and he put it on them. Well, how do we know that? Because Jesus prayed in John 17 for that same restoration of glory. He's prayed that the same glory that was on him, and he made reference to the fact that it was the glory that he had with the Father at the beginning. Well, what was the beginning? Before all of this was created, he prayed to the Lord that the same glory would be on those who would believe on his name. If you look at the context of that particular scripture. So that means that they had a level of glory. They had a magnitude of God with them, a magnitude of God upon them that they literally lost in the Garden of Eden. And it is so important that we highlight the fact that God never stopped loving them because we understand that the redemptive principle was already at work. The lamb agreed to be slain from the foundation of the world. So before Adam could fall, before Eve could fall, the Lord had already agreed to be the sacrifice to bring them back into a place of right standing and righteousness with the most high God. So he already knew his love, his forbearance, his omniscience already showed him that there was going to be a necessity for him to bring uh, salvation and to bring deliverance. So his love is not the issue. And I think a lot of Christians get caught up on the love of God. So they mishandle the things of God and they lean back on the love of God. But there's two different things on how you handle the things of God, the things that have been entrusted to you, the calling of God, the grace of God, the anointing of God, the ministry of God. There's a difference between how you handle that and how you receive the love of God. And I think that that bears uh, repeating an emphasis at this point. Somebody say amen. All right. And so they lost all of that power. They lost all of that authority. And the redemptive process of God was already being employed in their lives and in creation. Now, let's jump over real quick to John, the first chapter, and we'll start at verse nine. It says this, and it's talking about Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, that there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. All right. So God, the creator, the sovereign, the ultimate, the apex, the most high, wrapped himself up in flesh and walked amongst men and they could not recognize that it was him. Interestingly enough, 
neither could the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious sects, the people who, according to uh, Judaic law and tradition, would spend somewhere between 12 to 14 hours a day studying the Torah, studying the ancient scriptures, studying the law. They studied it. They understood it. They looked for codes in it and mysteries and things that had to be revealed in it. Yet when God himself walked in the flesh, they didn't recognize him. That says a lot to me about what it takes to discern an authentic move and uh, release of God in the earth. Somebody say amen. So it says, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right, listen to this, the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. Hear the potency in this scripture. So the Lord Jesus Christ came into the earth. He is the incarnation of the Most High God. He is the incarnation of God himself. He is Yahweh in the flesh. He's walking on the earth. He's walking on terra firma. The people don't recognize him. The world doesn't receive him. They have no clue who he is. He comes to his own. His own receives him not. But then he goes on to say, to as many as did receive him. To them, to those specific ones, he gave the right to become the children of God. And then he goes on to, to identify that these sons of God, these children of God, are those who are born not according to flesh and blood uh, or the will of man, but they are born by the spirit of the Most High God. This is incredible because it gives us insight into the potency and the power of what the salvation experience actually accomplishes for us. Here the scripture says in John 3 and 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, we understand Nicodemus came to him by night. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what is this whole concept of being born again? We have Adam and Eve in the garden listening to God walk in the cool of the day, in the glory of God as a covering and as an atmosphere. They are deceived by the arch enemy of God. He uh, tricks them out of all of their right, their position, their power, their authority. He takes the level and the authority of the magistrate away from them. And he becomes the prince in the power of the air. He also becomes the God of the age, which, which meant that Adam really was meant to be in his stead, in the stead of God, a ruler, not only over creation, but over the age. Because you got to remember that God's original intention for their creation was eternity. It was not a temporal world. It was not a world where things would have to pass away. The whole death principle was not interjected in it until the fall. Somebody say amen. So Adam's real jurisdiction was meant to be a God of the age because that's what Satan slyly seduced out of his hand. That's the power and the authority that he took. So he illegally became a God, which we understand from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 was his intention all along. How did he get to the place of becoming a God or setting up his 
throne or his kingdom. He had to seduce it out of somebody that rightfully and legally already possessed it, right? So we understand all that. So when we start to consider salvation with this as a backdrop, beloved, it is not about the ritual of church. It is not simply just about uh, going to to heaven in the end. It's not simply about that, although these things are extremely important pieces of it. But the born again experience for us is literally a, uh, a death. It is a bypassing. It is a renunciation. It is a transformation. It is a renewal that literally breaks off all of the limitations that were imposed on us through Adam's transgression and it begins the process in us to restore us back to every single thing that Adam and Eve lost in that garden. Everything, the powers, the authorities, the aptitudes, the abilities, the atmosphere of glory, the glory as a covering, the relationship with the almighty God, the ability to think and to move faster than the speed of light, to hear God's intelligence in the realm and in the way that he expresses it, and then having complete understanding of it. All of our salvation literally is a rebirth. It is a completely, so if you could just imagine a child being born into the world for the first time, that baby is being born into a completely new realm of existence. Nothing after birth is like it was before birth. They only knew that fetus. They only knew the environment of what filled that sack. They only knew what the mother uh, ate and fed them. They only knew the sounds which were distorted through all of the liquid that was around them and through the skin and the layers of fat that separated them in their mother's belly from the outside world. Everything had a veil, everything had a lens, everything had a skin on it. But then when they are birthed into this realm, they literally break and divorce all of the realities of the previous world that they had only known from inception, from creation. It was the only thing they ever experienced. And then they are born again or born into a whole new world. This world, sights, sounds, foods, colors, voices, movement, apparatuses, uh, they got a bed now to sit in. There are rocking chairs, there are carriages, there are blankets, there are hats, there are clothes, there are needles, there's medicine, there's doctors, there's nurses, on and on and on and on. Every single experience that that baby has for the next several years is a brand new encounter in a new world. So when the Lord specifically and strategically used the terminology of being born again, he says that you have to understand that accepting this salvation that the prophets prophesied about because he was talking to Jews before his death, burial, and resurrection. So although they didn't understand the full portent of their need for him as a savior, they did understand the message of salvation because it had been spoken of in all of their law and in all of the prophets. So he used terminology that said, you have to go into a whole new world. You have to divorce the world you're in you have to divorce everything that you think that you are and have experienced and have become in this world. You have to get outside of the limitations of the parameters of this world, and you literally have to enter into a whole new 
existence. And he said, you cannot get into the kingdom unless you come through the matrix of this spiritual womb. And he literally implies again in the discourse to Nicodemus that this birth is not about being born of the water because he contrasted being born of the water and the spirit. Nicodemus asked the question about can a man be born again? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Which establishes that somehow he made a reference to that natural birth being the birth of the water. Jesus said, no, it's not just the natural birth, but it is those who are born again of the spirit. These are those that have entrance into the kingdom of God. Now watch this. This is powerful. So the salvation experience is not, a just, it's not just about making heaven, making heaven your home. The salvation experience is to bring you back into that realm and that encounter and that experience into that image and likeness of God that we completely lost in Adam's transgression in the Garden of Eden. So when we consider the backdrop of all of this as we are dealing with the transformation of the soul, then we understand why it is so imperative that our soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions, why they be transformed. It is so imperative because the intention of salvation is to get our whole being back to the image and the likeness of God. Somebody shout hallelujah and say amen, all right? Now, Jesus goes on to talk about these people not being born of the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but they are being born of God. So when we are born again, the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. He's a new species. He's a new creature. He's a new genus that old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. They've all become new because he enters into a whole new world and realm of existence. Somebody say amen. All right. Now let's look at Romans 8. And it says this, uh, verse 28. And we know, <clears throat> excuse me, that God calls us all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. This scripture blows my mind. It blows my mind specifically in this, in this season when we begin to deal with the seed of God, when we begin to deal with the nature of God, when we begin to deal with the sons of God. And this is the next series that we're going to be working on after we deal with the transformation of the soul, because our souls needed some work before we could even really understand where the Holy Spirit is going to take us in that series. All right. All things are working together for the good of those who love the Lord, those who are the called according to his purpose. And then it says this, for those whom he foreknew, he already knew. So we're talking about pre-incarnate knowledge. It's the same experience that Jeremiah the prophet had when the Lord said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Yada, Hebrew. It means literally new. It's a word for intercourse. It's a word for dialogue. It's a word for interaction. And so he had a pre-incarnate knowledge of him and it ordained him in that realm from eternity to be a prophet and establish the boundaries and the parameters of his calling. So what does that say to us? Let's, let's put on the mind of Christ for a minute as I'm beginning to wind down. Let's put on the mind of Christ and understand something for a minute, okay? So in the mind of Christ, there are people that he knows from eternity. Before they're formed in their mother's womb, before the mother and father meet, before the mother and father get married, 
before the mother and father consummate the marriage, there is an experience that is divine where the sovereign Lord has not only created this entity, this being, this person within himself, but at some point he had interaction and discourse with this individual Establish the boundaries and the parameters, the length, the breadth, the width, and the height of their calling, their purpose, their assignment, their anointing, where they're going to go, what they're going to do, what they're going to say. All of these things are established by the sovereign in eternity. And then he takes the individuals and shapes them himself and forms them himself in the womb that he has already predetermined to be the matrix to bring them from his eternal world into the natural realm. Jeremiah later goes on to say, which is interesting to me, when he gets really ticked off with the people of God that God sends him to minister to, he gets really ticked off with God too. It says, I'm never going to prophesy in your name anymore. I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to do it. And the Bible says that the word of the Lord in him <clears throat> as a prophet became like a fire shut up in his bones so that he could not contain it. He could not resist the, the pension or the, the, the impetus to prophesy in the name of the Lord, although he was ready to commit ministerial suicide. He was resigning. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want nothing to do with God anymore. He didn't want nothing to do with the people. And God overrode his will. <clears throat> Excuse me. How is it that the sovereign overrode his will? He overrode his will because he already established the boundaries and the parameters of his calling in eternity before he came into the earth. So what does that say? So when the scripture talks about people who are born again, who are not born according to the will of the flesh, who are not born just according to blood, but they're born of the spirit, they're born again of the spirit, they're born by the will of God, it says to me that there has to be people in the earth that the Lord has sent into the earth who he knows are going to facilitate his purposes, who knows based on his omniscience and his providence that they are going to respond aptly and correctly to his calling, to his prodding, to the restructuring of their uh, experience in the world, which will bring them to an unequivocal yes to the call, who are going to respond to the proddings and the urgings of the Holy Spirit towards the things that God has called them to do. These people are a different kind of people because then he goes on to say, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Predestined. That's predestination. Before they even had a choice in the matter, before they had a will, he already said, these, these people here will be conformed into my son's image and likeness. Now, what does it mean to be conformed into the image and in the likeness of God? We're going back to Genesis 1. We're going back to Salem. We're going back to Demuth. We're going back to the shaded reflection. We're going back to the similitude and the likeness of God. So what does this mean when it says conform to the image of his son? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because the Bible says no man has seen God at any time. Jesus Christ of Nazareth said that out of his mouth. No man has ever seen God at any time, but the son who is in the bosom of the father has revealed him. So what does that say? If the Bible says no man has seen God at any time, if the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who's the epitome of truth, says no man has seen God at any time, what does it mean? It means no man has ever seen God. So how do you explain Ezekiel's vision? How do you explain Isaiah's vision? 
How do you explain the encounters of those like the Apostle John who have been caught up in the heavens and seen and heard things that were not even legal uh, uh, or lawful to utter or to write or to release into this world? This is how you explain it. They saw Jesus. Because according to Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. Our sovereign is invisible. So even when Ezekiel saw the throne and the living creatures and the angels surrounding the throne, he saw Jesus. So if he saw Jesus, watch this, the Bible talks about these people who are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. That means that there is a race. That means that there is a species. It means that there is a, an entirely different group of people post-Adam who don't have the image missing. They have the image because they've been predestined to be conformed to the image. I hope I didn't lose you. There's a people, a race, an ethnos, a genus, after Adam, according to this text, who have already been selected to return to the image of what was lost. Can I present to you that in this age of the kingdom, that in this age of Christianity, that in this age of the sovereignty of the Most High God and his nation of people and those that have his DNA and those that are of his blood that are born again by the spirit, that he is releasing us now into a place where we can now understand and appropriate all of the attributes of the image because we have been predestined to be returned to it. And so if I'm made in his image and likeness, we're not talking about pictures in our, in our, in our, in our uh, social media uh, age. We're not talking about an Instagram post. If I'm in his image and likeness, it means he's not just talking about just a resemblance, but he's talking about likeness, similitude, comparative similitude. He's saying he's returning us to be conformed to the image of the son, predestined to be conformed to the image of the son. He's returning us to the attributes. So what are the attributes of the son? What are the attributes of his image and likeness? Oh, it means that we're going to answer the travail of creation that's groaning and waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Well, what does it mean to be a son of God? It means one that has his image and his likeness, his similitude, that is shaped and formed after him, that is the shaded reflection of his person. So in the transformation of the soul, and I'm going to stop here. We'll pick this up next time. In the transformation of the soul, it's not just your eternal spirit that's going to take on his image because God has a soul. He talked about his soul being vexed. He talked about being vexed. We've seen the emotions of God. We've seen the Holy Spirit searching the deep things uh, of God as his spirit searching his depth. So if the Holy Spirit is deep in God, searching the deep things of God and then reveals it to us, there's more inside his depth than just his spirit because his spirit is in his depth searching what's in there. God has a soul. He has a mind and a will and emotions, of course. The whole entire concept of uh, John 1, uh, in the beginning was the word, the word there, logos, or uh, logos, it, it means concept, thought, idea. God has thoughts. He has an idea, right? So in the transformation of the soul, it's more than just your spirit being changed. It's more than just your eternal self being changed. But your soul, your personality, your drives, your behaviors, who you are has to be transformed. 
We're going to delve into this a little bit deeper. Father, I thank you for the word. I pray that the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ would rest mightily upon us and that you would open our eyes and ears and our hearts of understanding to see, to hear, and experience and know Christ in a deeper way than we ever had before. I pray for the release of your will, the release of your purpose, the release of your angelic and supernal backing in all things that pertain to your kingdom. Father, we surround your leadership. We surround those that are on this live with prayer, with a wall of fire, and that we uh, would literally destroy by the word of the Lord every onslaught of the satanic kingdom against them. Everything that Satan would try to do to stifle their forward movement, their progression, their confirmation into the likeness and image of Jesus Christ. We put a, a halt to it. We command it to cease and desist. And Father, we release the impetus of your will in every single thing in their lives so that they can mirror and reflect your purpose in all things. We thank you, we praise you, and we call it done in the matchless and mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Amen and amen.